and welcome to episode E of the Temple of Bleh podcast. Uh, this is another episode pertaining to the history of Roadrunner Records. In this episode, I'm speaking to Steve Ricardo. Steve has had a very illustrious career in the music industry, working at places like Giant Records, Metal Blade, Enigma, uh, and working with a vast array of artists that you're bound to have heard of and love. And we're talking about none of that. We're talking about the seven months that he spent at Roadrunner Records. Steve has an incredibly important role to play in the history of Roadrunner Records in that he opened the New York office with Holly Lane, as previously mentioned on previous episodes. So I'd be remiss to uh, talk about Steve without plugging his podcast, Blown Smoke with Twisted Rico. Frankly, it's a better podcast than this one, so you need to check it out, and I'll, I'll post some links in the description. Depending on where you are, either Spotify or YouTube, there'll be a link somewhere. Just keep an eye out for it. It's a better podcast. Just fucking listen to it. So, without further ado, Steve Ricardo. One, two, fuck shit up. Hello, you all right? (laughs) Can you see me? Yeah, man, sorry, I left you hanging. Oh, no, I I had to run out for a second. I apologize, man. How you doing, man? Dude, I'm all right. I, I, I sat down, I put the headphones on, I just heard the door creak and then saw the image. Yeah, of I, went, I went out on the porch for a second, man, because there was nothing happening. So I figured you were, and I know I'm early, so. No, it's cool. I was feeding the little one, but I managed to get up five minutes early. So that's all right. Where are you? Uh, I'm in New Yorkshire, in England. England. So, so you're, in, you're in New York, I'm in Old York. That's, that's I'm actually in Boston. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually, I went to England once. I stayed in Kensington okay. on my way to the Medem convention when I was working. Oh, no, that wasn't Roadrunner. That was a different company. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was my only time in England. I went to Rough Trade, Caroline. I went to visit all, all right. the, I don't even know if those companies are still there anymore. But this mm. is in like, I think that was the late 80s, early 90s. Right, right. You're missing out, man. This is, um, I'm a, I interviewed Anvil in March. And um, there, and Rob from Anvil was like, oh, yeah, London isn't the UK. This is the UK. <laughs> like all the bits outside of London, all the industrial revolution stuff. Um, but yeah, it's worth a visit. So how have, you been, have, you, have, you, have you voted today? Yes, I early voted, actually. I was going to say, because I was, I was re- almost reluctant to book you in for today. My other slot was in on Thursday, but on Thursday we have bonfire night and, and they'll just be... There'll just be fireworks going off in the background. So I was like, that's not going to be good for interviewing. <laughs> I am not afraid to admit that I was very anxious to vote against Donald Trump. <laughs> so I did not, I'm not a Trumper. I'm a liberal. So, so fuck him, man. <laughs> I know you got a kind of similar kind of leader in England. So I don't know what, doesn't matter what side of the uh, political. Oh, totally. uh, it's uh, the way I, I see Boris Johnson is like he's the right man for the right people because he's a man without policy and without any sort of like any substance. But neither's the electorate. We're all very confused. We're all like completely split down the middle. So he's probably the right man for that. But well, we're, I'd agree with you. Is is we're same beyond confused here, man? It's like <clears throat> I don't know how the hell this guy ever got elected, man. It, it's been four years of hell, man. Plus the pandemic. Now forget it. It's yeah, out of man. control here, man. I'm really so, intrigued to see what the press cycle is going to be afterwards when you yeah. have not as someone so contentious in office if it ends up with him with, with, with Biden going in. But we'll, we'll, we'll see, I think. Sorry, I interrupted you. 
Oh no, that's okay. I'm I'm anxious to answer whatever. If you want, I could tell you how I how the whole thing happened, how I ended up at Roadrunner. You know what, man? Yeah. In fact, by way of introduction, um, I've I've got some because your tenure with Roadrunner was seven months. If I've read somewhere. <laughs> yeah, um, I uh, I got fired after seven months. Yeah. Right. So okay. Got, I was in the music business my whole life. It's the only yeah. job that I ever got. And I'll tell you the whole story, man. It's like, uh, how did you hear? How did you hear that? Oh man, I think Monty has a Facebook uh, page in which he um, he kind of he kind of is kind of doing what I'm doing. I'm trying to tell the story of Roadrunner, but he's doing it through like blog posts about 150 or 300 words. Uh, and he mentioned the Great Cap, and I've been looking for information on the Great Cap like something a little more candid than the Discogs page or <clears throat> her website. Um, and I your name came you, up. I could tell you the whole story, how that started, because I wasn't even working for Roadrunner when it's I... Uh, that, yeah. It, it, let's, let's do this chronologically. So let's start with Enigma, because the, my, first, <laughs> my first question is, when you were at Enigma, you worked, did you work with Thor? Thor was there before I was there. I know Thor. Well, actually, when I first started at Enigma, I started in the distribution branch at Green World. I was very, and I started selling records over the phone. And then about a year and a half after doing that, I moved over to the label. That's when I signed, I signed a lot of bands to Enigma, but um, Thor wasn't one of them, but I met Thor. (laughs) I was hoping you'd have some insight on his film career. (laughs) <laughs> i'm sorry i don't i know he had okay. a girlfriend that i met too i can't remember who she was she was like uh she was interesting as well that's a long time ago man that's like <laughs> 93 or four or something like that that's off to him though he's banging out an album every year every year for the last 15 years i think but yeah hats off to him so how did the transition from Enigma. I wasn't expecting you to ask about Thor. <laughs> threw me a curveball there. Go ahead. I was, looking, I was just looking. It's cool, man. I was just like looking at the chronology because it's obviously just a very specific point in time. Is seven months, presumably December '86 to June '87. Um, but it it is critical for for this narrative that I'm trying to draw up, which is it's when the U.S. office opened, which is the genesis of Roadrunner as we know it. Like a lot of people won't understand Roadrunner to be. It's a European label that, that started in the 80s by a then, I think maybe then he was um, case with maybe 45 years old, 40 years old. So I don't think a lot of people get that and they understand Rodana to be this US sort of monolithic independent metal label. And the genesis of that was during your tenure. So that's, so I was pretty, I was as acute as I could be around my reading around that time. And that's why I, I was like, I'll look into Enigma. Oh, Thor's there. Great. <laughs> okay. let's, let's, let's start there then. So you're at Enigma. You move over to the label after working in the distribution side, which is, I imagine, an extremely helpful thing to be working on distribution because I bet that's where, that's where the, the bean counters are for the most part, right? In the distribution where the, where the, mon- the revenue is actually flowing. So from there, you Sorry. go... <laughs> <laughs> It's all right. Um, so from there you go to Roadrunner. So can you tell me about the transition from Enigma to Roadrunner? Well, I had a really good, uh, successful career going at Enigma. And my friend Paul Murata, who was, uh, ran the, the New York Green World office, Holly actually started working there, Holly Lane. She worked under Paul. He called me one day and said, 
you're an East Coast guy. You've been out in California for too long. I found you something on the East Coast. And I'm like, all right, what is it? And he's like, Roadrunner's opening an office. They want you to come and run the office. And I'm like, Roadrunner. I know a little about them. I knew about uh, Motorhead was affiliated with them in Europe and Venom. Mm -hmm. And I knew some of the bands. So I was like, hey, you can't hurt, you know? Sure. So Case Wessels flew out to L.A. Mm -hmm. And I met him for lunch on the Sunset Strip. I didn't know then that he was straight and uh, sober. And I had (laughs) several beers during our meeting because I was a young, I was very young and arrogant at that time. Right, okay. um, He offered me the job basically on the spot. He said, I want you to come to New York. I want you to run our New York office. Holly Lane is already there. You know her, right? And I'm like, I've never met her, but I know who she is. Mm. So he's like, are you interested? He offered me a decent deal, decent money, and he gave me some moving expenses. I okay. thought about it, and I, I took the job, and I said, okay, I'll move to New York. I can tell you right now, years later and even a year later, I regretted, the mo- I regretted taking that job, <laughs> but the money was good and everything. And part of the deal was I would get to go to Medem, you know, in January. This was in November. Sure. So... He hired me, and then I gave Enigma my notice. They were really surprised that I was right. leaving. And, uh, but in a way, they, I guess they, they were getting big at the time. We were expl- Enigma was, had exploded already, hmm. and I had a lot to do. I was one of the original eight people when I started working there, and the company now consisted of way more than eight people. Right. So I, in New York seemed like a really cool challenge. So um, I mailed all my stuff to the, the Roadrunner office. Holly, Holly had already gotten 225 Lafayette, and uh, it was just her, okay? And she was there, <laughs> and she was excited, and we were excited. She yeah. knew I worked with Poison, and she was like, I love them. They're my favorite bubblegum band, and I never heard anyone call them a bubblegum band. <laughs> yeah, you know what? They are a bubblegum band. You're right. So um, – I came, I got to New York. That's how I got there. Do you want me to continue on what happened when I got there or? Um, yeah, let's, my next question was going to be what goes into the opening of a U.S. office of a European label. But I imagine that's, that's what's going, that's what's coming up. It was really confusing to me because <laughs> I, they asked both of us to do a lot of things that we weren't really familiar with. They wanted <laughs> us to do all the bookkeeping and all the accounting. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Dude, I came from college radio and I signed bands and I'm a marketing guy. I don't know anything about accounting. So right. they taught us this very complicated. I had to go to Jules Kurtz's office once a week and meet with the lawyer. Entertainment lawyers, you know, I got to know them from signing bands, but I didn't plan on having to hang out with entertainment lawyers <laughs> all the time. And I did. And then they taught us this very complicated system. But mm-hmm. then cases like, you know what? you're not catching on to this. So why don't you come spend a week in Amsterdam and then you will, you can go to me down. So I went out to Amsterdam. That was a trip, man. I hung out with metal Mike, you know, metal Mike. I've got him on the 17th. I don't, I, I don't know much about him, but I know he keeps appearing on all the thanks 
of all the albums. So I'm like, all right, who the fuck is this dude? And I know we shared a room in Cannes, so I got to know him quite well. We partied our asses off. But yeah. um, so I went to Roadrunner and I hung out there, and the guys in the office took me to the red light district every night, and we just like. It was the first time I heard about, you know, legal marijuana and legal everything. Everything was legal. <laughs> I loved Amsterdam. Um, but still, it was a – I don't think I could I, – I don't th- – I think in the first few months, I never saw Case Wessel smile once. He wasn't okay. a very personable guy, you know. He okay. was just always business. And, yeah. you know, never – Jan, uh, Jan Vin – what the hell was his name? Vandalinden? Jan Vanderlinden, I think he was the other owner of Roadrunner. He was right. cool. Yeah, he was cool. When I hung out with him, and um, you have to forgive me, this is 1980. Oh, yeah. So, when I hung out with him, I really liked him. But so I went there, and that was cool. And then when we went to Medem, Medem was a blast. That was my first Medem. I met Davy Jones from the Monkees. What's, what's, Med- what's Medem? Uh, it's a big music festival that happens every year in Cannes. It's a right, big got it. International music festival. The same okay. place at the Palais where they have the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, I ended sweet. up going like several years. I went like four or five years out okay. there. But that was my first time. Oh, and I had God. a lot of fun because I met all these. I was like a young partying girl crazy guy, you know? Mm. So I just enjoyed the European women and yeah. I had a lot of fun, man. For me, it was like fun. <laughs> and we had meetings every day, but it was more like. Case was never around. He let me and Metal Mike run the booth, and people would come in. It was different than a, an American convention like mm. CMJ or Foundations, a new music seminar. At this convention, he wanted you to get the tapes and listen to them there and tell the people what you thought of them. And I thought that was really odd. Okay, yeah. but that's what we did. And Metal Mike, he was more of the A, and I did some ANR. I signed, you know as you know, the great cat. Uh, but, you know, I did, and I got a couple other deals going, which I'll tell you about. But, I, but he was more of an A&R guy, and he was a writer in Europe. So he did more yep. of that, and I did more of the schmoozing. And then <laughs> after that, when I got back, Holly was really upset, by the way, because she didn't get to go to me. Oh, no. Um, here's the thing that I want to tell you about Holly. Let me just tell you, we, 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 we went through a really, really turbulent time together there, mm. but we managed to be, stay friends. And I talked to her right up to about two weeks before she passed away. We actually hung out together several times um, when I left Roadrun. And there was a band that she actually gave me a tape of, and I ended up signing them the giant records. It was INC, Indestructible Noise Command. Okay. I don't know if you know them. They had two records. But she's the one that gave me the tape. Yeah. So we had a really good relationship. While we were in that office, though, it was really difficult. And I tell everyone this, and it's true. We started drinking earlier and earlier every day. <laughs> it was like it was 5 o'clock, and I'm, I'm going to go get a six-pack. I'll be back. Four o'clock, three o'clock, two o'clock. Let's just go out to lunch and get a few drinks and maybe we'll be able to figure out what was going on because it was confusing. So, so what were you, what you, to put that into more context, what were you asked to do? Was it, was it cases throwing bands that you're saying, start this out, set this up in America? Would, you know, what's the deal there? Well, he handed me uh, Carnivore and Whiplash when I got there, you know, and I had to deal with their crazy manager, Connie Barrett. She was just a handful to deal with. And Pete Steele, the first time I met Pete Steele, 
Holly and I went down the CBGB to meet him and we walk in the room and she's like, she knew him already. She's like, this is Steve Ricardo and the dude's huge, right? He gets in my face. He goes, if you fuck my record up, I will kill you. And I was like, is this guy serious? <laughs> no one else was laughing. So I'm like, okay. And it was at that show, the famous reindeer brain show. I don't know if you heard about this. I heard about this. He came out on stage for the last song with a big white bucket full of real reindeer brains. And he <laughs> throw it. It was blood and guts. I was like, what the? I couldn't believe it. It was insane. So I dealt with them. We put out the um, King Diamond Christmas record. Mm. can't remember the name of it. No presents for Christmas or something. Like that, yeah. <laughs> a, a funny thing happened, though, when Holly and I were sitting in the office one day. Somebody came, banged on the door and came walking in. This guy came walking in. And he's like, hi. And we're like, who are you? And he goes, I'm King. He didn't have makeup on, man. We right. didn't recognize him. So King Diamond came walking in. There were funny things like that that happened. So he Case wanted me to be an A&R guy, and he wanted me to deal with important distribution, our American distributors. So I used to go over there every week and talk to them about our records. But we really didn't have a lot at first. We had Whiplash, Carnivore, and the King Diamond Christmas record. And then we... He also wanted me to uh, run Emergo Records, which really uh, right. Yeah. Like I've been trying to find people associated with that because I've I've done Hawker to death. Oh, I can totally tell you about Emergo because it was kind of like I had the alternative. Even though I signed metal bands, you know, and, my, and I ended up working at Metal Blade afterwards. But this is before, mm. way before Metal Blade. Metal Blade. Uh, I mostly worked with indie, indie rock and alternative and punk. So they gave us the flesh tones. So not only did we have Whiplash and Carnival with a crazy manager, we had the flesh tones. Yeah. You have a light show going on over there? Oh, um, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, just, I'm just opening up my spreadsheet of all the records. Lights going. Uh, so he gave us the flesh tones. And the funny thing about it is Case wanted these stickers on all these records, these anti-drug stickers. And the flesh like, we don't want that on our record. So Case is like, you have to go talk to their manager and tell them that we want that on the record. And I'm like, you want me to go tell a band that we're going to put an anti-drug <laughs> sticker on their record when they're all drug addicts. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so there was great. The seven months I was there, believe me, it was actually more like eight months. I don't know why I always say seven, but when I figured mm. it out, I was there for eight months. Um, it was just a really crazy, every, all crazy things happened. <laughs> but I did, when I was in California, find a three song tape from the great cat that was in a pile of tapes that someone right. sent. And I just sent a postcard and said, I don't always say, you know, I wasn't into the rejection postcards, but they made us send them. Mm -hmm. I sent one up and I said, you know, this is really interesting. Keep in touch. I swear to God, two weeks later, I'm in my office. The receptionist is like, Steve, there's someone here to see you. I go in the lobby and there's three people there covered in leather and chains. And this chick jumps up and goes, I'm the great cat. And I'm like, you came to California? I'm like, she goes, no, we came to see you. You're the only guy that liked our tape. And I was like, okay. So we went out to lunch. And you know what? 
I bought into it, man. And I went to Case and I said, Case, this is really interesting. Hey, he made my, I know they made money off the great cat. And he said, sign her. And I think it was like 10 grand or something. And we made, you know, we signed the great cat. We had a great party. Holly put the party together and everyone in the whole New York metal scene was there. And Bob Groon was there. Even people like Monty, Monty Connor, who ended up working for uh, Roadrunner, was there. People yeah. like that. Don Kay. I don't know if you know him. There was all these. Yeah. Uh, Mike Schnapp. All these New York metal dudes were all there. And Cat was like just driving everybody nuts. But Bob Groon took all these great photos of us. You know, the great Bob Groon, one of the great rock yeah, photographers. Yeah. And uh, nobody liked her. It was like they couldn't stand her. She just was like, worship me and die. And she'd get on the phone and scream at people. And I just thought it was funny. And Holly did too. And, and she, was she the first signing for the U.S. office? She was my first signing. <laughs> I ended, After that, I signed the Neighborhoods to the uh, Murgo right. label. Cool. And um, I don't get any credit for Gangrene, but I was the first one that really brought, because I knew Gangrene, because they're a yeah. Boston band. And I was from Boston, but other people get credit. Holly actually... I went to look for my messages from her, but her sister deleted her Facebook account because right. she went, she would, she really told me a lot of things in the last few years about how she didn't get credit for certain things. And it really mm. bothered her okay. like uh, Sepultura, you know, and there were certain bands that she felt like she was really in on early in and she didn't really get credit for it. She was upset. I'm not going to mention yeah. any names and other people that took all the credit for it, you know, but that's the music business stuff. It you is. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So with it's interesting, just to go out to the great cat, fucking hell. I, I, I was, I reached out to her to see if I could get um, an interview with her. You wouldn't do it. Um, she would on the condition that I promote the shit out of her new <laughs> CD. Um, which to be fair, listen, just to sort of like meet minds here. I'm all for it. Better than Malmsteen. I'm just going to say, she should be doing the festival slots that Malmsteen's doing. Um, there's a place oh, for... So you, you know, think she's talented. She's fucking unbelievable. It's like, there's, there's a place... Because I really do like Malmsteen. And when I was a kid, I was like, this is fucking brilliant. But he did a lot of original songs when I wanted to hear some neoclassical metal guitar arrangements. That's what I wanted. But she's delivering that down the fucking line. I mean, it's interesting you bring up Ingve because when I first got to California, I worked on Steeler, you know, yep. we distributed Steeler through uh, Green World Distribution, yep. uh, Ron Keel and Ingve Malmsteen, you know, that was really a big record. I remember that as being one of the first really cool underground metal records at the time, Shrapnel mm. Records, which was a great label, Mike Varney. Yeah. Yep. I think he had, did he end up working at Roadrunner, Mike Varney? I don't know. Honestly, I'm going to be honest with you. When I left Roadrunner and I left that place, and I'll tell you why I got fired, I never looked back. I was like, thank God I never have to talk to Case Wessels ever again for the rest of my life. Because that guy drove me crazy, man. He did. He he was like the – he just drove me nuts. Holly had a much better temperament to deal right. with him than I did. You know, every time I talked to him, I got off the phone. I was like, I need a beer. You know, it was like, and I never had, and I worked in for labels for like 20 years. That's mm -hmm. the only time I really had a hard time. Well, you know, you'd have problems, but he was just ruthless. What was he trying to, what was he asking of you? 
he was more concerned with numbers and things. And I kept trying to explain to him over and over again, I'm not an accountant. I'm mm. not a bookkeeper, you know, I, right. I don't, this is not the kind of work that I do, man. I'm like an art, I'm an artist guy, artist, artist uh, development. That's what I do. I develop artists, you know, mm. and it, we, it was really difficult getting things done there. That is, is, you know what? You, people are going to listen to this and go, oh, well, guess what? Roadrunner became the largest metal label. And so I don't care if they did. It doesn't yeah. matter. I think Metal Blade's bigger, but, you know, that's just me, you know. Mm -hmm. When I worked for Metal Blade, I didn't have those kind of problems with Brian Slagle, you know. Brian mm -hmm. was a easy guy to deal with, and he knew everyone had their roles, you know. At Roadrun, it's like, dude, you got me doing 20 different things. You got Harley doing 20 different things. Mm -hmm. Finally, let us hire this other uh, girl that came in and worked with us. And uh, that was a disaster too, because we didn't get we couldn't get along. She was just not wanting. She just didn't want it. She wanted to do things her way. She was a stubborn, stubborn. Re <laughs> Regina Joska. Regina, that's it. Regina. I had her pegged as the the Emergo person. She did I, work on Emergo after okay. Emergo. She worked on the neighborhoods after I left. Somebody had to oh, deal with yeah. Waxing Poetics was the other band. Mm. Uh, it was just those three at that time. Mm. And um, there were other bands that I thought that I wanted to sign, but didn't get, we didn't get that far, you know? Right. Right. Okay. It kind of makes sense though, because if you don't have in-house staff doing certain roles and you're ringing from Amsterdam every day going, Hey, up, so how much have you, you know, have you done the uh, A&R meeting this week? How many units did you ship? How much money does that make? It's like, uh, and I, I work in like, um, in a corporate setting. And when I was like starting out, same shit. <laughs> you know, when, by the time Monty and get Mike Gitter and those guys got there, they, they had a much stable thing. Doug Keogh actually came in, took over from me when I left. He had his shit together and he knew how to deal with people like Case better than I could. I was young, you know, and oh, I didn't totally. know how to deal with that guy, you know, mm -hmm. and I regretted every day leaving Enigma, you know, and I, I never said, called the Heinz up and said, can I come back? Because my ego was too big for that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I did regret be in there um holly though she kind of made made it a little easier for me she was miserable though too i'm surprised she lasted there as long as she did i don't even know how long she lasted there but she lasted about six months longer than you really i thought it was she, longer than that wow so if i've got if i've got my dates right so you arrived in 86 87 october till june yeah i think because the story is Monty Connor was at the time, this is, this is through the lens of Monty because he did a great podcast with Rob Flynn from Machine Head and told this story. So Monty was working at Shatter, not Shrapnel, but Shatter Records. That folded in about October, September, October. Um, and then he got a call from Brian Slagle and from Kay saying with two job offers. Um, oh. And Holly knew Monty. Metal Blade. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. Go ahead. So, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and Holly knew Monty because Monty was working in college radio promotion. That was his thing. Um, and obviously, Holly would be the one that sends Monty the CDs and all that stuff. Uh, 
he go he goes over at sort of Holly's beck and call. Um, and within a week of him starting in, I believe it was December or at least sort of the autumn of that year, Holly goes to start mechanic records with Steve Sinclair. That's it. That's it. So yeah, it was that Christmas. But it's interesting to say about the Sepultura bit um, and her input into that, because I remember her CV, which is still online, her, her resume, it, it quotes having um, Sepultura being signed by her. Similarly, there's another source, I can't remember what, which quoted Holly having given Sepultura to this particular manager to sort of like take over the line, carry over the line and, and finish the deal with. And then I think Monty had something to do with it. And I think there was just like a number of people over a certain period. But it's interesting how if she if she has come out and said, yeah, there were some things which I didn't quite get credit for, which she was responsible for, which is... Yeah, like like I said... Like I said, I don't go around and tell everyone I signed Gangrene, the Roadrunner, but I know I was talking to Alec Peters, their manager, and I, Chris Doherty was a friend of mine. So, but I don't say I signed them to Roadrunner, but you know, I, I could tell you other stories. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. a lot of bands that that happened with. It's in, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's, inter- it's sad, but because um, you want to try and get the full story, but sometimes it, you get to a point where it's so nuanced where. You can say I was the first guy in the room, but I didn't sign the dotted line. And it all takes it's it's all a very important part of the story. But on the macro, when you look back, you know, when you look at Sepultura's career and things like that, you're not thinking of the Monty Connors and the the uh, Holly Lanes and things like that. You know, one other thing was uh, Jules Kurtz called me one day and he said, "There's a band playing at CB's. Can you go check them out?" Mm. And I went and checked them out and they were called at the time Vernon Reed's living color. They weren't even living color yet. Yeah. I saw them. There were like 70 people in the room. It was mind blowing. I went mm. to case and without me saying the obvious reason he wouldn't sign them, that was the reason he wouldn't sign them. You know, and mm. I was like, man could be huge. The guitar player's great, but mm. they ended up doing fine. They went to a major label, you know, they did it. Yeah, yeah. Um, where should I go from here? Um, so let's just focus on the elephant in the room, which is, uh, can you tell me about Holly, apart from the, the stress of the time, can you just tell me how she was as a person? Because she's the unsung hero in this entire ordeal, really. That's a good title for her, the unsung hero. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love Holly, you know, her and I, we spent a weekend together in Florida a few years, a few years ago. And we just like, were so proud of each other for, mm. for the fact that we can look back at that period and say, we don't hate each other <laughs> because <laughs> it was so difficult in that office. It was mostly because we were being bombarded by all these people Everybody wanted to know about the Roadrunner U.S. office. Mm. And at the same time, Amsterdam was like driving us crazy. And then whenever Case came out, it was a lot of pressure. We, mm. were, we felt like we were, under pre- we were under a lot of pressure. That's why I said we used to drink a lot. And how old are you guys at this point? We were both in our early 20s. Yeah. I mean, we were young. Yeah. I mean, I think Holly was probably a couple of years younger than me, 
Maybe the same age. You know, honestly, I don't know. That's funny that I can't remember that, but I can't. I'd say we were both about 24, 25 at the time. Mm. Yeah. So was she, because when you, when I'm doing my research on her, it's interesting. Her career is effectively, she was kind of a freelance music person the entire way through. It's kind of what, I think that's what she kind of identified herself as, even though she has, you know, stints, uh, as I say, mechanic at, um, at Roadrunner and so on. I think it basically says 1976 to present, uh, all things related to music. So it was clearly like a, a massively, it, it, there was never going to be a point where she just sort of tip over and go, ah, I'm going to join and work in a, going to join a bank or I'm going to use be an, an advertising firm or something like that. We were very similar. And I think that's why we got along because musically, we would go to this bar called downtown Beirut in the East mm-hmm. village. We just went there for the jukebox, man. Cause <laughs> he had a really good punk rock jukebox. We both really liked punk, but yeah. we were like in the metal world. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I got to New York, she was like, you got to figure out how to fit in with these people. Like I fit in. And I'm like, I'm never going to fit in with these people. You know, they were like, who's this guy? You know, like I worked with metal bands, but it was, it was not like I was going to fit into the New York thrash metal thing that was going on, you know, but it wasn't, you know, uh, Holly, she was really, it was funny at times I felt like we were in a competition who would stay at the office longer. And finally (laughs) I gave up. I was like, I can't put as many hours in. If I'm going to show up at 8.30 in the morning after being out till 3 and she's already there, I can't compete with her, you know? So she ended up, like, practically living in that office, you know? And um, it was a weird building, too, because there were no other record labels in that building. We were in Soho, and right overlooking Little Italy, Mm. it was just really... She lived in um, way down on the Lower East Side, and I lived on 10th Street in between 1st and 2nd. So we were close, but we were kind of in opposite directions, you know? But we always turned each other on to different music. Like, Mm. she was way in on Annihilator right at the very beginning. She told me about Annihilator before no one even knew them. Okay, so she was, like, hip to something, just like I was hip to other bands, which I didn't sign the, to, to Roadrunner. I mm. ended up signing all these punk bands to Giant, you know, when I went there. But but we we were like good A&R people. I think that both sure. of us should have just been A&R, but that's yeah. not what they did to us. Yeah, maybe they, they should have rolled out. Other things, maybe you know? like starting with two people wasn't the right thing. They should have started with five, two A&R, one bookkeeper, one receptionist, and one general, like GM, general manager person, maybe. Uh, I can't, I, it was 87, 86. I can't fucking. 86. Here's the thing, though. When I came in and I was under the impression from Case that he hired me to run the label in the U.S., we didn't have that going on in the office. We right away were like, you know what? I'm not going to boss you around and shit. We're just going to work together. So yeah, that's sure. how I think we survived that, that period. Mm. And we became friends she would call me a lot when she was at mechanic when she was having frustrating times and things you know and uh everything else that she did is a mystery (laughs) i gotta be honest with you when i looked at her resume online i was like 
wait a second. I didn't know she worked at Black Heart Records. And I asked other people and they didn't know either. So it was mm. kind of, I was like, I didn't even know she worked there. Mm. You know, it was weird. It was, she had a really, I'm not discrediting, discrediting her. I just didn't always know what she was up to. Like with me, it was like everyone knew. I was at Metal Blade, then I worked at A&M Records for a long time, you know? Mm. And it was like, I had a, these labels I worked for, the, the five labels, bang, bang, bang. You know, mm. Everyone knew that. Holly, you didn't really know what was going on with her. And uh, she had a very strange relationship with Steve Sinclair, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you talked to Steve. It's funny how things come... Steve Sinclair worked at Enigma before I did. And then Holly ended up working with Steve Sinclair. Right. Because he started a label with Ron Gowdy that went through Enigma, Bemis Brain Records, you know. Right. And um, so we knew each other. We all knew each other, you know. It was just, um, I wish that we, I'm glad that we had the experience that we worked in that office together. But in some ways, I wish we hadn't been <laughs> friends and we didn't have to deal with Case Wessels, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I don't mean to, like, be all over Case, but he was... Dude, it's, it's cool. He was it's, hard to work for. It's interesting. I get um, I get the spectrum of stories about Case is, like, vast. You've got some people like yourself who had a, a particularly hard time because he was very numbers-oriented. He built the house, but he wasn't living in it as a kind of is a kind of way of looking at it. He built the house for metalheads to go into and make money out of a metal factory, but he wasn't living in it. I'll so. never discredit him though. He definitely is a genius for what he mm. accomplished. I just had personal issues with him, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it ranges from things like that to things like I said earlier, like he, he covered the moving costs when you moved over from LA. It's, it's an, he, he, as you say, you can't discredit him for his means, yeah, I mean, I thought it was going to be much more fun because you know what? You like to have fun too when you're doing this because dealing with artists every day is no picnic, okay? I've dealt with a lot of bands. I became a manager after I did labels and mm. you need a psychology degree to do along with the people you work with because mm. you want to have a united, a united front to deal with like – you know, the, 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 the whiplash and the carnivores and all those bands that we had to deal with, with the crazy managers, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but um, it wasn't United. <laughs> Dude, I work in, in live sound. I know it's uh, psychologically taxing to work with certain bands. <laughs> so moving on from, from the hell that was the two man office um, and getting all these requests, well, trying to, trying to put a foothold in a massive industry with just two twenty-somethings, um, who were the first? Who, who was the first wave of employees and inter- interns? You mentioned Regina. Oh yeah, Did there you- were some other people. Maureen, there was a girl named Maureen that was our intern. Okay. Um, Is John Bello there when you were there? No, John was after me. Uh-huh. John and I were friends on uh, Facebook, but politics have separated us. Oh no. Unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> I knew John more from like CBGB because every um, Sunday afternoon I would go to the hardcore matinee every single Sunday. Yeah. And then when I left Roadrunner and I went to Giant, I was there for I was out there for two more years. And every Sunday, Tommy from Prong was the sound man. 
there. So I dealt, I had Tommy every week. And then there was all these cast of characters, Agnostic Front, Cro-Mags, Crumb Suckers, all these New York people, Connie Hall, who was like the assistant booking agent and the bartender at (laughs) CV's. You know, we all knew each other, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, Maureen's the only other intern that I can remember off the top of my head. Um, I only can remember Maureen and Regina working there. I don't, and Re- Regina wasn't really an employee. She was an independent contractor. Right. Okay. Hired, I actually hired, hired her <laughs> to be like the publicist, you know, and um, she handled publicity mm-hmm. and um, I, I'm, you know what, there may have been others there, but I can't recall it that right now. Maureen's the only one I can remember. See if I've got anything in my notes. I don't think I will, to be honest. Uh, Kathy um, Reed. Who? Kathy Reed. Don't know. I can't recall Kathy Reed. No. I mean, all it's f- funny because the people that ended up working there, Gitter, I've known forever. You know, Gitter mm. was like a Boston hardcore guy. You know, and he actually introduced me to Dag Nasty and I ended up signing them introducing me uniform choice. I ended up signing them. You know, Mm -hmm. he helped me in an indirect way when I ran giant records. And then I, when he went to, he was at road run, I'm pretty sure for a long time, wasn't he? I believe it was 97 through to something like 2007, somewhere towards the end of the decade before what we're terming the red wedding when it got bought out. Um, So somewhere between 97 and 2012. I think, but I need to, I need to yeah, hit him up at some point. <laughs> yeah. 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 I need to hit him up at some point. Cause he's responsible for quite a lot of the, the metal core sort of early two thousands act, which I'm really. You probably like. signed some pretty big bands, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. 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 Who um, did he sign the Roadrunner? There was Kill Switch Engage. I think Vision awesome Disorder. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know what? Actually, um, it's funny you mentioned Dag Nasty because I remember he was saying on another podcast, um, his first band when he was like a teenager just tried to model themselves after Dag Nasty. And he was the singer and he was ashamed of it these days. Gitter said that? Yeah, he said, he said, I said, maybe not ashamed. He was embarrassed. He was embarrassed because he did the most wow. embarrassing job. Yeah, I mean, we do have that Dag Nasty connection. There's no doubt about it because he yeah. actually gave Doug carry on my phone number and Doug called me and he was like, Hey, I heard you starting a punk label. And I'm like, yeah, goes, we're looking for a new label. I'm like, what? You're, you're, you're on a great label right now. Why would you want to leave? You know I mean? Mm. But they wanted to leave Ian Mackay and I signed them. Fair enough. Um, I think he also did Trivium. Oh, he, he had a hand in Trivium. I think Monty signed him, but I think Mike might have, I think once you get to this point in Roadrunner, there's all the A&R people. It's kind of incestuous. So it, it, who exactly signed who is a difficult question to ask. Did answer you talk even. to Doug Keogh? Um, No. And I don't think I will because he still works there. And because this sort of project's encapsulating a lot of people that don't have a lot of nice things to say about their experience with, with uh, Roadrunner, it feels Doug like to ask Keogh. him would... Doug Keogh still works for Roadrunner? He's sat at Monty's desk, I believe. He was there in 1987. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think to ask him to to say anything would be a conflict of interest, given the, everything else right. that's sort of happening. I don't have anything bad to say about Doug Keogh. He's a good guy. I don't really have anything bad to say about anyone. It's just that it was just a difficult situation. You oh, know? totally. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, how do I, I how do I say this in talking to people who have had difficult experiences with Roadrunner Records, I tend to throw up the filter of, well, let's talk about Hanlon, Hanlon's Razor, it's called. People aren't meant to be dicks. They're not, I mean, Case wasn't on an ivory tower trying to throw shit at you. He's, you know, it, it's not malice. It, label. Yeah, it's not malice. It's, it's, I think the saying is it's not malice, it's incompetence, mm-hmm. but the incompetence side of it can be marred up with, you know, it was urgency, it was desperation, it was lack of social skills, or it was lack of foresight. So, I, you know, when everyone talks shit about their experience, especially if they were royally fucked over or could be seen as royally fucked over, it, they weren't malicious when they dropped that band or when they didn't pay that band. It was just the economics of it. And it's just the way that things are built, you know, is, and a lot of the time people have no hard feelings. So, and that's a great thing, I think. Yeah. I mean, you can't deny that Roadrunner, um, a very successful company, you know? Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. Um, so Gangrene, this is was intriguing to me because Gangrene's probably one of the first hardcore bands. If you unless if we unless we discount well, let's discount Carnivore because they have like a crossover element to them. But Gangrene, I believe, was signed to Roadrunner prior to Hawker being the imprint. I don't even know anything about Hawker to be honest with you. When I when I looked at your YouTube video and I saw Hawker, I was like. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> that's, sorry. That's, that's cool. Because it's, it's, you had Emergo, which was the imprint. Is that, alternative. What, is that what Emergo became, Hawker? No, 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 they still ran in parallel, but Hawker was developed with John Bellow um, as just the hardcore label. Um, yeah, I don't, I, who, who are some of the bands? Um, off the top of my head. Uh, Christ, I can't even remember now. That's not good, is it? I was writing it four it friggin' weeks ago. It doesn't matter. It's like token you know, entry. Oh yeah, token entry. Yeah, I know token entry. I didn't realize. I thought they were on Positive Force Records. I didn't know about Hawker. Mm. I don't really know much about it. But you know what? Maybe it's just something that slipped my mind. You know, maybe I do know about. It. I know John Bellow. I just yeah. didn't know about. Was he at Roadrunner for a long time too? Um, I think he. I don't know when he joined, but he started Hawker. Um, on cases sort of request that he has like a hot, like a hardcore arm. And I think it lasted about a year, maybe into 89. That's and probably then, why I don't know much about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gang green actually went more in a metal direction, you know, by, by the time that record came out on Roadrunner, they mm-hmm. were way more faster and hardcore. And then they became like skate to hell and all that, you know, it was like a, I don't know what, they tried to make gangrene something bigger than it ever should have been with the big stage and all that mm. stuff. They were better when they were just a small band that just could rock out, you know, Chris Doherty is a star, you know, he's a, I love gangrene. I just didn't, the road running years were not for me. Some of my favorite things that they did. I was just intrigued because I think they were the first sort of like example of a non-metal angle for roadrunner 
And yeah, I, think- I know Case liked him because I talked to Case a lot about him, and he's the one that said keep pursuing it. But then my last month when I was there, because I I got fired, but Case let me stay for a whole month till I lined up another job, and I had two choices of where to work and i ended up you know starting giant records through dutch east i almost went to work for combat but i i don't know it was just too weird of a situation for me over there i i met with barry cobra many times and Mm. i don't know they were just too new york for me how's that (laughs) (laughs) i know just got a couple of bands that were hawker just to jog my memory wrecking crew oh yeah okay wrecking crews from boston yeah i know those guys too no yeah. for an answer. Good band. Well, those are good bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, I was I was good that I couldn't remember because I'd been writing about it for so long and researching it for so long, and it completely left um, left my mind. And Pagan Babies, I think those were the Pagan main Babies. ones. Okay, I know all the bands. I just didn't know. I couldn't remember that they were on Hawker. Oh yeah, no, no worries. Obviously, the question was about Gangrene, but it was just I needed to jog my own memory. But that's what happened after you left that made the a hardcore imprint, and that's sort of where that's where everyone lived for a while, I guess. <clears throat> when I left Roadrunner, I got I had a lot to prove because mm. I left my job at Enigma. I was gone after seven months, eight months, <laughs> and I was like, I'm gonna look like a failure unless I really. And I kicked ass on Giant Records. I was like. Mm. I am not going to let this New York experience. And that's when Brian Slagle just called me one day after a few years after that and said, when you come to LA, man, let's hang out. Cause I knew him from Enigma mm. and I went there and we were walking around. He was showing me the great metal blade operation. And he took me into this office and shut the door. He goes, this is your office if you want it. I'm like, really? And it was a big decision to make, but I missed California. So I went, hi. And I yeah. took that job. And then I didn't do A&R for metal. But I signed one band while I was there. I, I mostly just did artist development and marketing, you know? Who was and the band? Was good label. Really good label. Metal Blade. They, there was, that was more, a lot more of an artist-friendlier label, I think, than Roadrunner, you know, but I wasn't there for a long time. But while I was there, the artists mm. were like a lot more prevalent. Like we were all friends with the guys in Fates Warning and Lizzie Borden and DRI and all those bands. They all came to the office. They all mm. hung out. I took care of <laughs> Phil Mogg for two days when he came to the States, you know? I mean, it was like, there was a lot of good bands were on Metal Blade. I know this is not about Metal Blade. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's all right. It's, but I think you can't talk about Roadrunner without talking about the wider metal industry. So fire away. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, as far as metal goes, I mean, I always think consider Metal Blade is one of the best labels. They're still around too, you know. Not to take anything away from Roadrunner. I just think that when you work somewhere and it doesn't go good – you don't want, and then Holly and I shared that with each other, and we both felt the same way. So mm. move on was yeah, the whole yeah. idea of it, because we became much better friends after she left, and she was working with Mechanic, and then mm. over the years we came closer and closer. You know, who was and the I one band passing very very hard? She's a really good person, and it just it broke my heart, man. Broke my heart. Yeah, I don't know what, I, it's not my grief to, you know, it's not my grief to, to, to analyze or to put a microscope on it, but it, it's just so doing, it, 
slowly uncovering this story is just like it's making me realize what the fuck how come we haven't heard of a you know what i mean that that's me as a just a bog standard british metalhead should be somewhat aware of the architects of my sort of taste and that's not a name that's cropped up in my sort of knowledge you didn't know who holly was when you started this project so yeah i came across a name within a few days but you know, you hear about Monty Connor all the time, just in liner notes, in interviews, and in things like that. But um, Holly's not a name that would come by too normally. Well, she deserves a lot more credit than she's gotten. How's that? Yep. And that's what I'm here to do. You have to deal with me for seven months. That's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the, the one band that you signed at Metal Blade? Eviction. I've heard of them. Pittsburgh. They were, they yeah. did okay. I work, I, there were bands that got handed to me there that I had to work closely with, you know. I was there, I mean, Lizzie Borden and Faith's Warning, Intruder from uh, um, Nashville, Princess Pang, unfortunately mm. that one bombed. They were a New York band. Um, well, I'm, uh, there were so many, Candle Mass, I love those guys yeah, yeah. from Sweden. I got to hang out with those guys a lot. They were really really cool guys mm. there was a lot of really cool armored saint sorry i oh. should have said them first because good friends with john bush and joey vera and those guys you know i mean we had a great roster when i look at the metal blade roster it might not have had records that sold as much as some of the roadrunner bands but they mm. were great bands man those are great bands i'm mentioning right now i, I mean don't, uh... warning should have been way bigger than they are. I don't want to make any presumptions about how Metal Blade operates versus Roadrunner, but I do I do want to look into that at some point. But the impression I get just from looking at the Metal Blade roster is it's a lot more transparent in its dealings, I believe. Because it had a lot of the people I talked to regarding Roadrunner, it's very much they get very starry eyed when case comes with the deal. And it might not be effectively communicated to them that they're not going to get a great deal of money because Case is paying for the seventh album, the sixth album, the fifth album. He's working. That's how he's working his accounts. He's mitigating his risk on every investment in the band. Whereas with Metal Blade, I think there are bands that make zero money on Metal Blade, but they're still signed to Metal Blade because they're going to get some kind of exposure. They're going to get something. loyalty. There's loyalty. Brian Slagle is very loyal. He's mm. still friends with all those bands I mentioned and many more that came after Cannibal Corpse and all the bands that came after I left mm. there. They're all, Brian is like, you never hear very many people say, well, Brian Slagle screwed me, you know? You yeah, don't yeah. You hear that about a lot of labels, but you don't hear that about Metal Blade. Yeah. The reputation, I think, is much better than Roadrunners. The artist, certainly. Um, I'm reading Maybe, Brian Slager's book. It might book. not be in Europe, okay? I'm not talking about Europe now. I'm talking about the US, you know? Mm. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting lens I should look through because Roadrunner is kind of a ubiquitous na- uh, name in the UK, especially because all those bands from like the early 2000s, the Triviums, the Slipknots, your uh, Killswitch Engages, your Chimeras, that metalcore scene that my gear was kind of very much present for. That's like a massive deal over here. That spawned like a generation of, of music fans. And I think in a way it's kind of like, it's given me rose tinted glasses over that particular era. And I don't know, I couldn't tell you what Metal Blade were doing in the UK at that time or in Europe. So it's not it? much. 
Metal Blade Europe didn't come along until well after that. You know, it took Brian a while to get that European audience, but you know, he he's a lot of those bands were still popular in Europe, mm. you know, but uh, they weren't as big as Roadrunner in Europe. Mm. No way. Mm. Mm. I don't think they. I don't think they are now either. I don't think yeah. they ever were. I mean, when we got UFO, UFO, that ain't misbehaving record. We worked our asses off on that record, but it didn't really go anywhere. Mm. It sold like fifty thousand copies. Right. You know, it wasn't like the old UFO records. You know. But did Brian drop him off the back of that, or did did they? Was he sticking with them? Well, UFO is an interesting story. I think that they. Uh, it was just Phil, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't like the original members were there. It was Phil and some other guys, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was only an EP, and somehow it landed on our lap. Mm-hmm. All I know is that one day Brian said to me, Phil Mogg's going to be here. Can you take care of him for two <laughs> days? I go to his hotel and pick him up at 10 in the morning. Can we get some beer first? <laughs> and he was like, drank all day. And one of my favorite things that happened was, is he's like, I want to go meet some friends. And I take him to the rainbow and I'm like, who's his friends? We look and there's Lita Ford and Chris Holmes from Wasp was sitting there. We go over and hang out with them. That was pretty cool, man. Let me tell you, (laughs) hanging out with Lita Ford was not a bad night. (laughs) Have you seen uh, Chris's um, recent activity with the documentary and the new album that's coming out? No, but he's, he was completely nuts when I met him. So, I mean, he was one of those guys that was like, I don't know if I really want to hang out with this guy a lot. Yeah, He's yeah. really out there. You know him it's, well? I don't know him too well, but I'm kind of on the journey with him because I think he's like, he, he had those days. Um, he was off the rails. And then I think he left Wasp and he calmed down. And now he's doing his solo stuff. And it's all tracking him kind of coming. I don't, I don't like calling things comebacks because I, I don't think metal is a comeback genre. I think people are always sort of present doing something. But I, to get him in, a, it's cool to watch him reach for a place of pure stability and getting into a place of pure metal output, if that makes any right. sense. That's what he's after. And I'm on, and I'm on board. I'm all for it. <laughs> um, cool. The great cap. You have a lot more because if you do, I got to get a plug because my battery's dying on my laptop. Oh, um, I've got about two or three more. Well, do you mind? Maybe. Go for it. Go for it. I'll edit it out. It's fine. Thank you. This is fun because I have my own podcast. Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. Can I promote yeah. my podcast? Oh, totally. And I do all the interviews, you know? <laughs> okay we're good sorry yeah. about that no that's cool I, I was saying i subscribed to your podcast as of two okay. nights ago when i do my homework and i was like all right we're on we're on regular there's a, rog- a regular conversational basis with with steve out in the world that i can sort of tap into and, and learn from it's funny so. how you have steve and ricardo on my thing here you know no one ever calls me that oh man that's not me i that's um oh is that on my set oh okay yeah I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've, you cl- been, I've only been on Zoom one other time. I don't really use Zoom. So Do I get it. My, my computer my, did that. Okay, I got you. Yeah, my, my audio used to cack out and fuck up on Zoom. So I, I stuck with Skype for a while. And then I, I had a conversation with the guitarist from Realm, and he did the Zoom, the Zoom thing. And it just looks fucking great. So I was like, all right, I've got to make this work. So, <laughs> um, 
so the great cat, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask for more details of, of how she drove everyone up the fucking wall. <laughs> well, she was really loud. Like she screamed, basically. She didn't really talk. Yeah. But you know what? She loved me. Mm. It was, we had a really good connection. I, no one else had that. I guess Monty kind of became close to her. I was, when I first saw that thing he put on, um, someone called me and said, did you see what Monty Connor wrote all about the cat and he never mentioned you or anything? I was like, what do you mean? He's not taking credit for her, is he? And he's like, kind of. So I just went on his page because we are friends and I liked it. And then when he saw I was on there, he got in touch with me right away and yeah, yeah. got all my info in there because Kat was really upset when I left uh, Roadrunner. Mm. But we stayed friends too, you know. We still, to this day, we communicate, you know. Mm. Um, I try not to talk on the phone with her. <laughs> we just write. Not that I don't love her, but she <laughs> can be overbearing at times, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I, that's one of the qualities about her that makes her so so cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. And my my interview with her will be is hanging by a thread if I don't plug her new stuff, which I will do. To, it, and to you her know, credit. When she, when she showed up at her signing party that we had, she bought, brought Bob Groon with her. We didn't get Bob Groon to come. She had the one of the greatest rock photographers in history show up to take pictures of us. And I was like, Bob Groon's here, you know? And then I got all these 8 by 10 black and whites he sent them to the office to me, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. I was hoping that Cat would become a lot bigger, you know, but she didn't, unfortunately. I, I'm um, flying the flag now. This is what she, she should get her heyday now. I, still- I can't believe she's not – she's got to do this thing. I'm going to write her and tell her to, to do an interview with you. Yeah, well, I've got I've, – I've sent her five questions, um, which she will reply to upon me posting a load of shit everywhere. So I'll do that. Um, I don't. I don't mind. It's the hustle, man. That's what you got to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, what else can I tell you about Cat? Um, she. Oh, a great story. It was at the CMJ Metal Convention, mm. and she started going at it with Mustaine, Dave Mustaine. Oh, and, uh, gold. <laughs> he was. She. He was fucked up, and she didn't. She's not a drinker. She's just like relentless. Mm. She practically made him cry. He wanted to fight her. People were holding him back. It was to me, it was the greatest thing ever. I'm like, how come every writer here is not talking about the fact that the great cat made Dave Mustaine cry? You know, I mean, it was like that was an epic moment. I that just popped into my head. I absolutely love I think I talked about it on my show, yeah. but it was amazing. <laughs> Because Mustaine's kind of, you know, mm. I worked with Chris Poland, you know, DM the Machine. When yeah. I was at a and I went on tour with them mm. and I got to know Chris. He didn't really bad, he wasn't their bad mouth and Dave, but, mm. you know, they had a very turbulent ending. But now I guess they're friends again. Mm. So I think he came back to do 2004's um, The System Has Failed. I think he did that. I think that was him, uh, he, Chris Poland. He, those first two Megadeth records are fantastic, though, you know, mm. they that Chris played on. It's too bad they didn't stick together because Chris is a phenomenal guitar mm. player. Um, but yeah, with, with, with Kat, there's just, this is my, my last question about Kat. I'm not trying to just blow smoke up her ass be, to try and get an interview. I think I'm genuinely concerned that I've not really heard much about her prior to now. Cause I think there's, 
it's just through down the line, through line fucking neoclassical metal. And it's like, well, why this should have been like front and center with like your Jason Beckers and your Malmsteins. And it's just weird that it's not there, but I got to admire the hustle. Because of her personality, because people didn't, people couldn't deal with her. They didn't want, they didn't like the way she acted. She's like, she would literally tell everyone worship me or die. You know, that was her thing. You know, she would just be in your face screaming. And we tried to mellow her out, but (laughs) get it. There was no way. Monty, I guess, thinks he did, but I don't think their relation. I think they had a turbulent relationship from what I heard. I don't know what he says about it, but. I'm grinning like a kid because I think me and you might be on the same page in thinking that I think that's fucking brilliant. I, I think you need real motherfuckers. Yeah, she's real as it gets, man. She yeah. was like, I mean, she took on Dave Mustaine in front of the whole metal community. I was like, what? It's like, she has balls, man. You know, I was like, fuck. she wasn't afraid to say anything about anyone. And she never said, oh, I, she didn't look at other rock stars as idols. It was all about her. I went to fucking Juilliard. You know, I know I could play the vi. I could be a famous classical violinist and she could have been, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Honestly, man, like, um, she had those two albums of Roadrunner, and then I think every every other output is just the one-off song or EP that she just throws on Spotify, just gets it on. So you'll have, like, the last five releases are all 2020 releases, but I admire that. But Case must have seen something in her, because he's an opera guy, right? Oh, yeah, Case let me sign her. When I brought, when I told him about, he gave me the thumbs up right away. Mm. That's one thing I will say about Case, is he knew. He saw what I saw. He's, he, but they couldn't deal with her personality. That was the problem, you know? Yeah. I mean, but she definitely has star. She's a star. I mm. would just, I'm not going to say star potential. I'm going to say she is a star. Whether she yeah. sold enough records to be called a star or not doesn't really matter because she is a star. She should have been a lot bigger. I'm going to say, man, it's, got a, it's um, the great cat for Bloodstock 2021. <laughs> the campaign. Got to get it and make it happen. I think the last thing I saw when she's promoting this stuff she's doing for Beethoven's 250th birthday, I think it's she's. I think she called like a four course mashup, and it's literally her screaming at a camera, telling people how to make omelets and stuff like that. <laughs> it's fucking. I, intense. I'll be honest with you. I'm not. I don't. I haven't listened to a lot of the new stuff, so I don't really know what she's doing. I'll have to check it out. But um, my memories. She's definitely the highlight of my Metal Blade career. I mean, I worked with the neighborhoods a lot, but they're not a metal band, so you probably don't care about them. But they were a great band for me to work with, and I was proud that I signed them to that label. I ended up signing them to Third Stone Atlantic Mm. years later again. But um, the cat, great cat, was like, you know, that and the thing I told you about King Diamond coming into the office. And, you know, I have some good memories of things that went on there. So how... I mean, you say you got fired. Um, was there a particular catalyst that caused that? Or yeah, was... it was the neighborhoods. They brought me a gatefold album. They wanted a gatefold album. Right. And when I told Case, Case was like, no way, we're not doing a gatefold album. And then when I went back to the band, they were heartbroken. Mm. And I was like, you know what? fuck this guy, man. I'm putting this into production anyways. And I did. They got their gatefold album. And it was really funny. It was a very peaceful signing. Mm. He came to New York and he said, 
I'm firing you, <laughs> but I'm going to let you stay here for another month mm. so you can follow up on this record. And he gave me a point on the record. So, and then we went out to dinner with the band and I was already fired. So, you know, he did that in a classy way. Yeah. And it's funny because I never spoke to him again. Mm. We never spoke to each other again after that. I never mm. even saw him again. I think he's, um, he's, he's not alive anymore, is he? He is. I think he's still around. I think he's still around. I don't, oh, he is. The thing. I don't really know. Um, he withdrew from public life even more than he did previously. That's um, that part, the great sat, the great cat signing party <clears> is <throat> one of the only pictures of him. There's only a few others. Really? That I found. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I think we had a hard time getting him into the photographs actually. Now that you mention it, he yeah. didn't really want to. And if you look at him in the photos, he doesn't look very happy. He's not smiling. Yeah, yeah I think he's um, – he like, we're, we're like fucking giving the finger and doing all this crazy shit in case he's just standing there. It was like a, an old guy dealing with a bunch of crazy kids. You know, that's what we were. We were yeah. a bunch of crazy kids. I have an important text message that I have to answer, but you can keep talking. I just got to answer this. No, it's cool. I'm just about to wrap up, to be honest. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll just – Let's keep keep going. No, no, sorry, keep going. I'll, I was just going to do a diatribe about how Case. I think he wanted to stay way out of everyone's way because if anyone knew who he was, they'd be giving him demos and shit like that. But even nowadays, I don't think. Even if I tried, I don't think I could get in touch with him. Yeah, you know, I don't like. I I didn't hang around with him very much. Mm. I really didn't. So I don't really know him that. I didn't really get to know him that well. Mm. I mean, we talked on the that one time we met in L.A. And then he came and I remember he asked me to go to an interview with him once when he interviewed Mike Schnapp. And mm -hmm. that was really funny because Mike Schnapp's a real character. And he worked for Epic. I don't know if he ever worked for Roadrunner. I don't think, I don't know if he got, did he work for Roadrunner? I, I think I've seen his name today. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll follow up with that. I think he did. Well, do, I, I think he was A&R at some point. It snaps a real New York character, and it was just funny. I just sat there and watched Case trying to communicate with him. It was really – it was funny. I think he liked Holly because Holly was very, like, would stay in line, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when he brought me in, he thought I was going to stay in line too, but I was a little, you know – yeah not in line i'm not afraid to admit that it was a disaster okay yeah, I, know yeah, yeah. I got some things accomplished but it wasn't one of my proudest jobs i've ever had in my life let's just put it that way hey man you started something that's uh you know lived on you could say lives on to this day but it certainly lived on until 2012 and it's they don't give me any credit though no one ever says uh oh you started the new york office holly gets all the credit for that no one ever <laughs> remember most people don't even know i was there they're like oh ricardo oh yeah ricardo was there the great cat oh fuck him you know it's <laughs> <laughs> well that's it for my questions man is there anything that i've missed or is there anything you want to plug well, I, if I can plug my own podcast, you know, Do it. I mean, it's blowing smoke with Twisted Rico. I have like about 59 episodes out now. Mm -hmm. I talk about a lot of my experiences in the music industry. I interview a lot of people, you know, whether they're in bands or producers or whatnot. It's on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor. And, and anywhere you can find it. Some of the episodes are on YouTube, but I don't really focus as much on YouTube. I'm sure. more about an audio. It's more of an audio podcast. 
Yeah, cool. I mean, same here. It's, for me, it's mostly audio, but I do the video thing because when I pull together the actual, as you saw on YouTube, like the actual overlays and kind of the timelines, it'd be cool to have sound bites of, you know, like when I talk about the office opening, the first thing that's going to be is your face going, it was a fucking disaster. <laughs> Shit like that. Okay. That's why I did the video. <laughs> that's fine, man. I have no problem with that because it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don um, Keo actually deserves a lot of credit, man. He actually saved it save them because he came in and him and I got along really well mm. and it was a smooth transition and he felt bad for me, but mm. I didn't feel bad. I was, I, was like, right. I was like, I had a job. I got a job. I, mm. I had the job before I even left there. So it didn't really bother me that I got fired, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last but not least, I know it's past Halloween, but have you ever seen a ghost? I'm asking everyone. I don't care I, what time of year it is. I think that both of two of my cats that have passed away have been following me around for a while. Seriously? Yeah, I hear them sometimes. You know, <laughs> they're not here. They're in their, they're, I have their ashes. Right. Right. It's but interesting. You didn't that, expect something that weird, did you? I kind of did. I kind of did because the only two people, the only three people that have come back with. Yeah, I had a weird experience. It's all been dog or cat related. As far as people go, I think about a lot of my – I've lost a lot of friends, you know. Mm. It's it's hard because I'm getting up there, man. And, and mm. like Holly's – it really took me hard, man. It hit me hard because we were talking, Reese, and I didn't know. And then when I found out, I was like, what? It was just – it was shocking. Mm. It just shocked me. Yeah. It's a mis- leave it to Holly Lane to leave us in a cloud of mystery because that's exactly what it is. No one even knows what happens. No one's talking about it. Mystery. In the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of the most contentious political situation the States have probably seen in a, God, a good long time, just whisked away into the night. Yeah, I miss her. But I, yeah, I have nothing but good feelings, good thoughts of Holly. Absolutely. Yeah. Glad that you found out about her. I really am. Yeah, she was instrumental in opening that office, believe me. She was. I'm a, I'm a signal booster for Holly and the great cat. That's that's my takeaway of this so far. And I think it needs to fucking happen. So Thank you. Right. Dude, Very yeah, that's it. That was really good. It was I, I was grinning the entire time. My mouth kinda hurts now actually. <laughs> Thanks, man. Hey, if you ever need anything, you know where to find me, man. Dude, I'm probably going to drop you emails with all kinds of shit I didn't say today, so... Okay. Uh, yeah, but I'll, I'll, right. I'll keep in touch. Thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, all the best. Take all right. care.